This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So I would go to school and I started acting out. And I got to the point where I was threatening my teachers. I was damaging school property. I was doing all these things. And when... Finally, one person, my, the dean of students, sat me down and said, why are you doing this? And I said, because it's the only way I can go to see my parents. It's the only way I can be with my parents. If I get in enough trouble, then I'll go to jail too. mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. This week, we talked to Dr. Jill McCorkle. Dr. McCorkle is a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. She holds faculty affiliations in Africana studies, gender and women's studies, and Irish studies. Dr. McCorkle is the founder and executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls, a nonprofit research advocacy organization dedicated to ending mass incarceration and gender violence. Her critically acclaimed first book, Breaking Women, Gender, Race, and the New Politics of Imprisonment, explores the impact of the war on drugs and punitive crime policies on incarcerated women. She is currently at work on a second book that examines the Me Too movement in the context of mass incarceration. We were really honored to have her on the show. Your action item for this week is to look into the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls and see if you can help, donate, or spend time volunteering for them. Thank you so much for listening.
I'm Jill McCorkle. I'm a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. And I'm also the founder and executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. And I really started the Philly Justice Project after spending the last two decades uh, studying mass incarceration and, and particularly uh, the ways in which mass incarceration was affecting women and how women's prisons have changed over the course of the drug war and uh, you know punitive sentencing. And so um, within the last couple of years, I realized that while a number of states have seen, in some cases, pretty significant declines in their prison population, that hasn't been happening for women. And it should be happening for women. Women should be the primary beneficiaries of any CJ reform efforts because women commit less serious crimes, less violent crimes, uh, less frequent in number, but they have been left beh behind largely in uh, criminal justice reform efforts and also organizing. And so uh, Philly Justice Project is uh, part of an effort that I'm undertaking to make sure that uh, we are identifying uh, why women continue to be over-sentenced uh, to incarceration, why women are overlooked in wrongful conviction cases, and also advocating for women and girls as a class. That's all good stuff. I mean, so just to throw a stat out there when we start this off, the increase of women in prison in the United States over the last decade has been 700%. Most of those crimes are considered conspiracy crimes or they're not crimes at all because the, the woman involved was not even involved in the crime in any way. They're just getting tagged with a conspiracy, a murder too, felony murder, depending on what state you're in. Um, so basically their participation is being either a partner of the person committing the crime, married to the person committing the crime, sometimes mother of the person committing the crime, you know, and the list goes on and on. Um, and so I think one of the most interesting things about your project is why isn't this happening all over the country? Why aren't there more people advocating for women given these stats and the fact that they are, when they're moved into the criminal justice system, specifically prison, if we wanna talk about voiceless voices, you know, because most men that are in prison have some kind of family support system, not maybe not most, but many, and most of those support systems are run by a woman. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, uh, problem that we run into when we talk about women being incarcerated because they're usually the ones supporting the rest of the family when they're incarcerated, you know, and when they're not. Yeah, I mean, you raise a number of uh, excellent points. And, you know, one thing early on when, when women's numbers first started to tick up, I was working as a graduate student pursuing my PhD. And I was interested in whether the, the numbers were a, sort of an artifact of women's increased participation in crime. And the answer is no, not at all. Women, women's crime hasn't changed really since the 1960s or 1970s. Uh, what changed was mandatory sentencing policies so you are, you know, particularly with drug crimes, you're convicted based on, you know, the weight and, and the kind of drug as opposed to the role that you might have played or not played in a, in a given, uh, you know, criminal drug offense. So, so part of it has to do with changes in sentencing policies. I think the other thing in terms of how women are getting left behind in criminal justice uh, reform and in prison abolition movements is that, um, you know, over the, the, last hundred years or so of um, in incarceration of men, 
men have developed, incarcerated men have developed really effective um, cultures around jailhouse lawyering and, and have won Supreme Court cases uh, for the right to be jailhouse lawyers. That tradition, that sort of cultural tradition and that scholarly tradition isn't present in women's institutions. And it's not because women aren't able to articulate problems with their cases. It is that women's institutions, women's prisons are so under-resourced that they didn't even have basic law library materials. And so to even challenge different gender differences in law libraries across the two prison systems, women weren't even able to get into court till the 1980s because they lacked access to, to the materials that would allow them uh, to get in court in, for, in the first place. Um, so I think you know that has, has a lot to do with how women are left behind. And then lastly, I just think that uh, women who are in the system are often some of the most vulnerable members of our society. And so getting nailed on accomplice liability, getting nailed on conspiracy charges, often this is really a reflection of poverty and women's vulnerability to violence and the racism that is present all the way through the system itself. And so we're talking about people who are already really marginalized and therefore lack the kind of deeper social networks that might allow other people to advocate on their behalf. Well, one of the things that, that Suave's brought up in other interviews around this issue is also, you know, and this is, we're not doing this season or this episode to disparage anyone by gender, but men are strangely quick to indict their partners as co-conspirators and basically rat on them. And it's not even treated the same way on the streets. Like if you bring your women, your woman down with you, you know, uh, when you get arrested for a murder or drug charge, it's not looked at in prison as like, is the same thing as, as being, is snitching on somebody that's like in your group or gang, you know, it's, the, it's the oddest thing. Like, it's almost like, you know, like there's some like pride in the fact that you, your woman was along with you for the ride, you know, even if they weren't, um, it's just a really strange sort of, it's like an exclusionary dynamic in the, in the sort of rat snitch, you know, culture of, of prison. That part is part of the drug culture game. That goes all the way back to the 80s, not just now. You know, I remember in the 80s where it, it, it was common to date a young girl, get the young girl to hold the package, get the young girl to hold the guns, and if she get caught, take the case, baby, I got you, right? But like I always say on the show, uh, when you go into these visiting rooms, in the man's visiting room, all you see is woman, right? you go into the visiting room in a woman's prison, you're not going to see probably, you're probably going to see a father or a grandfather. You're not going to see, the, you're not going to see the booze. You're not going to see the, the, the side dude. You're not going to see my honey dead, but none of that. They're not coming. We not coming to the prisons to see the sisters on a weekly basis. We not, you know, and, and this is what I always say to Kevin, that when you go to the male prison, I did 31 years, I had about 20 girlfriends. Right, because they come, they come into the visiting room. I, I, I missed my sociology class because I had to go on visits. I and I can say that now, but but I'm saying that to say that the women don't have the same privileges. You don't have websites where men fall in love with women and they go into the prison every week and being faithful. But you have that in the male prisons. You have that. I mean, that go on. It's been going on. It's still going on. And I know a lot of people probably be mad. Why is he talking about that? I'm talking about it because 
We talking about the sisters. We talking about sisters that are in these jails that don't have the basic resources to survive, let alone to get out of jail, even today. Because in the male prison, you don't let me go to the library. I could get upset. I could get mad. That's you know what that CEO gonna say? You know what, man? We don't need that drama. Here, write the past. In the woman's prison, they most likely end up in solitary confinement and locked into their cell. That's what they do. That's the difference. Listen, in a, it's a rule in Pennsylvania. So how do we, how do incarcerated women get money for commissary or get money to be able to hire an attorney? Men might have girlfriends or uh, family members who are willing to put the money on their books. So a lot of women, because they are, because they don't have anyone, have pursued the the prison pen pal, but it's being used against women who are coming up. Well, it's it's it being used against women who are coming up for commutation. So if a woman you know has a life or near life sentence and she's in her sixties and she ever had a prison pen pal who put money on her books, the DOC will not give her the vote. Will not give her a thumbs up on her application for commutation yep. and it, it's completely a reflection of her poverty and her effort to try to get resources in fact a lot of women are trying to use those resources to give something to their children because they feel so guilty about not being with their kids well it's interesting because you know i volunteer there's a there's a men's facility up the road from me uh, like if i could see over the hill i could see it from my house san quentin is right down the street from where i live oh, okay. and it is the most program-centered prison in the CDCR, maybe in the country. And yet, if you go down to Chowchilla, which is the women's prison, getting those resources is next to impossible. In fact, we're expanding the program now that I work for or I volunteer for, and I'm like, oh my God, why aren't we doing this with one of the women's prisons? We can't even get space in them because they don't have space for program. It's not even a matter of like, getting in there but many of the cdcr prisons in the state of california that are women's prisons don't have physical space for classrooms and that's crazy it's crazy and it's so irresponsible because of course in california uh, you have uh, this ongoing problem of you have ongoing problem of, of suicide in the prisons generally which is what triggered the um you know supreme court case but but it continues to happen in the women's prisons so that women who are incarcerated in California have the highest suicide rate of really any demographic group that you can think of, higher than incarcerated men, of course, higher than the general public. And so the state of California, having previously lost a Supreme Court case about issues around mental health and cruel and unusual punishment, is still allowing this problem to fester in the women's prisons. And one of the ways that they could solve it or at least mitigate it is having outside programming come in and you know what let's let's, let's get a little deeper than that right and i know this because i spent 31 years in a prison and my sister probably spent as much time in a prison in and out seven years here seven years there five years there right and i can tell you that the lack of resources and the lack of community support the lack of family support for the woman's prison it's what drives a lot of these women to engage and some of these unwanted relationships with staff, right? And and, and, it, and it put them in a position where the staff could take advantage of them. I know this firsthand because I speak to my sister and and it's like, yeah, I did that. 
because nobody was sending me money. When my mother died, you know, my mother was like the only source of, of income that my sister had be, when she was incarcerated. And once my mother died, that income stopped. And she still had like five years to do, you know, and, and it's hurtful when you, when, when you hear these stories because for a lot of people that's never experienced incarceration, a lot of people would like to say, this don't really happen in prison. It does happen. It does happen. It happens in the male prisons too, you know, so, but we gonna keep it to the, to the women's, right? It does happen. And this is the reason why you see so many rapes in these women's prison. This is the reason why you see so many women committing suicide. It's not that they can't handle the pressure of being incarcerated. That's not what it is. It's the torture that comes when you expose yourself to one of these guards and now they want to have sex with you anytime they want. They want to take advantage of you. It's the torture that come of being put in solitary confinement in complete isolation. That's right. With no resources or no way to communicate to the world when you're dealing with these women's prison. And this is why we decided to do this show because I don't think the public knows. They have no clue. They had no clue that a lot of these women, and I know a few of them, had babies with some of these COs, the same people that you paying their tax. The same people that your tax dollars are paying, right? And we're not talking about consent relationships either. Hey, listen, in Muncie, there's instances of women at SEI Muncie, uh, women who get pregnant while they're incarcerated, but Muncie used to have a phenomenon called the walk away because the grounds, there wasn't like the, the fence. So you could like walk away and go into the town. So there were conveniently walkaways from Muncie of women who were got pregnant while they were in the institution and are only recaptured and brought back after they have the baby. So that, so that any questions about how that woman would have gotten pregnant are all sort of conveniently disappeared. That's crazy. A walk right. away. Right. No, it, it, you know, and, and and this is this is what we're facing, and and we just talk about Pennsylvania, right? I could talk to you about the prisons in Delaware. Yes. Right? I could talk to you about the prisons in New York, as my sister did time in both states, and she would tell you. She would tell you, like, yeah, I did that. The other thing about this is there is no consensual relationship between a CO and a woman in prison. There's no such thing by law. Right. Or or between a man. If you're incarcerated, you know, the law says you can't give consent because of the coerciveness of Of the situation. But let me also just say then, I want to roll back to something Suave said, and I'm sure there are going to be men that are like, why the fuck are you guys talking about this? But the fact of the matter is, come on, tough guy. If you drag your woman into this, do the time. Do the fucking time. Don't give her up. Save her, you know? You're a tough guy. You're you're a gangster. You're a drug dealer. You're you know you're a murderer. Whatever it is, you're a tough guy. Be a tough guy. Do your fucking time. You know, and don't drag these women into it because you know what? The other thing is, there's a high likelihood she's going to be waiting for you when you get out. You know, right? And probably a high likelihood she's the mother yeah, of your children. taking care of your kids and taking care of your mom and huh. taking care of you know and fill in the blank. And this isn't every single man, obviously. I mean, this isn't, I'm not, again, it's not an indictment on a gender. No, it's not every single man, but it's like 80% of the people in the drug game 
of the man in the drug. And let's keep this 100. Let's keep it real. Let's not sugarcoat it. You have a lot of sisters out there that are fascinated with these fake Gucci bags, these fake Louis Vuitton bags that these dudes are getting you from the from the corner Chinese store, right? And now he loves you. So when he get popped, guess what? That drug money he used to buy you them fake bags are, are gonna get you indicted. Preach. Right? And get and guess what he gonna do when they tell him, you know what, you're facing 25, 50 years. Well, you know what? Uh Shanika from down the block, she carried this amount of gun. Now you got a case. And now your man that loves you is gonna go to court and testify against you. And look at you in the eyes and say, Well, she was the one carrying the drugs and cause and and PA. The first one they tell is the yeah. it's the one that gets and, the least and, time. And guess, everybody knows that. Guess what he's not not gonna be wearing when he gets to prison? A snitch jacket, even though he should. No. But what he's gonna do when he get that time cut, he gonna go have a relationship with your best friend or possibly your sister. I know plenty of them, dog. Yo, my sister, and I use my sister because I could use that as a case, right? My sisters, and I say sisters was in jail and my other sister went and had a child with her man blood related sisters with a punk ass drug dealer that end up telling on my sister and she ended up doing seven years that's crazy so so you know this is real information that these young women need to know no, it's very true. like if your man is asking you to carry a gun on the on the Greenhouse bus or the Peter Pan bus to New York you are getting indicted, right? If your man is asking you to carry a package or to hold a package or to put the drugs in your baby's diapers while you're traveling somewhere, you crazy. He don't love you. That's not love. And, and, and this is coming from somebody, right? That before I got incarcerated, I sold drugs in Philadelphia. I seen all that shit. I done it. I done it. I had a young girl. I was 16, she was 15. Look, I need you to hold a gun for me. I need you to hold a gun for me. When I got popped for my case, she got popped. The only difference was, the only difference was that my mother, my mother told me, because if my mother would not told me, I would have like, man, I ain't my gun. You know what my mother said? You got her in this mess, you gonna get her out of this mess, because that was my Good mother's goddaughter, right? <laughs> Because in my head, in my head, it was like, you bought that, that's your gun. They caught you with it, not me. You know, that was in my head. You know, so I'm talking from experience right. that when I see this stuff, I'm like, she don't love, he don't love you. He don't love you. If your man got to use your house to cut his drugs while you got your babies, that means he don't love you or your babies. Cause when this when they run down on your house, they're gonna take you to jail and they're gonna take your babies, and you're not getting That's them right. back. Because once you have a drug conviction in in, in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania, period, you definitely can't get in public housing. You definitely not gonna get no real um, um decent housing, cause that's that's on your record. And if you ain't got housing, you definitely ain't getting your kids back once they take them. And they'll terminate custody depending on length of sentence. So if your kids are in foster care for X amount of time, forget it. You know, but but I think that young women don't understand this, especially in, in, in the culture that we live in today where everybody 
you know, want to be on Facebook and Instagram, you know, I tell the people publicize that publicize the law. If you want to be a drug dealer, if you're going to be the side piece of a drug dealer, and I'm talking in the language that they can understand. If you're going to be the side piece of a drug dealer, I suggest that you study law and find out what comes with that. Right. And if you want to really get into it, go read some of them Don Diva magazines and you see how many women end up in prison because of they dudes work more time. Because I know a few women serving life right now because of their man. And their man is out here doing everything but taking care of them. Dr. Jill McCorkle, Suave Gonzalez, and Kevin McCracken should not be fitting the bill for taking care of your kids. We should not be fitting that bill. That means that you should be out here taking that responsibility. But if you don't, the state will. And they ain't got a problem with it. So let's talk a little bit about the project because, you know, this is the subject matter that you're taking on specific, specifically directed towards women, about women, advocating for women, taking on cases. Um, I know that you've assisted and how I believe a lot of this started was assisting getting a woman out of prison. And so maybe just talk a little bit about some of the work you've done, and then we can talk a bit about India because it's uh, it's an interesting case that we're going to be covering in detail. You know what, Kevin? Um, doc, Doctor Doctor McCorkle will not say it because she's too humble, but she was responsible for getting a woman out of jail. You know, her project was responsible, and and you got to get credit where credit is due. I know she probably won't do it because she's humble, uh, but I'm not. So this Thanks. is this is. <laughs> This I'll show is not a show it. for humility. This is a show of action and take, <laughs> taking a, accountability and responsibility for your actions, good or bad. So, <laughs> so, so, we say, so the bad, we the say, bad ones I've done on another show. <laughs> I mean, we saying thank you for helping that person out. But at some point, we, are, we, we interviewed a person and we asked her the same question. <laughs> you know, who was responsible for your success in getting out, you know? And if I don't get the answer that I think we deserve, I'll put it out because we've done the research already. Thank you for that, Doc. You showed me how to do good <laughs> research. I, yeah, well, that wasn't going to be hard for you. Uh, well, that was really his participation grade, which I gave him the nickname Ghost because he was. <laughs> um, so I, like, I would say, you know, my whole career has been studying the prison system and and the legal system and so because i've been in prison so much i've always on the side uh, provided assistance to people who were for really everything um even though i'm not a lawyer i've done a lot of um, helped a lot of guys in particular do pro se motions uh for habeas uh, i've helped on a lot of uh, petitions for clemency and commutation for parole and every so often i've uh, dipped into a couple of cases and so uh you know really the the most recent case um, involving a woman it, it had been I had primarily for the last like five or seven years been focusing more on what was happening in the men's prisons I'd previously written a book about the women's prisons and so I was kind of back into the men's and uh, then I got this case and we can talk about the case at another point but it was a woman um, doing life and when I started looking at the case it became very clear that this was a wrongful conviction case but not in the kind of uh, you know, DNA slam dunk wrongful conviction cases that we're familiar with. And so that's when I started, when I looked at the patterns in that particular case and the ways that police and prosecutors had 
played on this woman's vulnerability, her vulnerability to violence on the street, her vulnerability to poverty. That's when I started wondering how typical or atypical her situation was. And so uh, Justice Project was, was born and we started systematically then going through, particularly women who are, who are doing life and near life sentences on accomplice liability and conspiracy related uh, convictions. So uh, I s launched an uh, IG account, a Twitter account or whatever, as, as one does before, <laughs> before filing the legal nonprofit paperwork, you gotta be legit on social media. And uh, a friend of India Spellman's reached out to me and, and said, you gotta look at this case. I didn't know who this woman was. I didn't know who India Spellman was. And so uh, last summer I assigned a team of students and we just started working the case uh, from the ground up. And so before we even contacted uh, India's family, we just started our own investigation of the events of August 2010. Interesting. So let's set this up a little bit. Let's talk about India Spellman and who she is. Where is she right now? And maybe we can just discuss how she got there because, you know, we know all of us that have been on the show, worked on this show, you obviously know that the Philadelphia Police Department prior to the current administration in the DA's office kind of did whatever the hell they wanted, you know? And that included, when we're talking about women, I wanna be very clear and they've been sued and this is fact, this isn't something I'm making up. They have been sued and lost cases because they pressured women to be witnesses against other people by using their kids as a tool to uh, basically blackmail them. They can call it whatever they want, it's extortion. Um, you know, So the Philadelphia Police Department and its treatment of women is a long story of complete and utter disgrace. So you know, I'm just gonna set, I'm gonna leave it at that and specifically I believe there's an inspector in this case that has a history that is not pretty. So, you know, um, just talk a little bit about India and who she is. We want to humanize her because again, we're going to be doing probably a four part series on her and we're going to turn it over to Lisa Spees, who's a powerful and effective advocate for wrongful conviction. And I believe you've talked to her already. Um, and Spencer, who are going to co-host that four-part series, but we are going to cover it as an episode on the women's season of our flagship podcast, which is this one. So talk a little bit about her. Let's humanize India's story a bit, talk about her family. I know her grandfather is a former police officer, um, and we're just digging into this. So tell, tell us about her. Yeah, so when India was 17 years old, she was sentenced to 30 years to life in uh, Pennsylvania prison. So she's uh, currently at SCI Cambridge Springs, which is all the way out uh, just north of Pittsburgh, which means that it's almost impossible for her family to see her, certainly not with any regularity. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, India was, uh, you know, kind of a, she was an aspiring, she was on her bas her high school basketball team. She was a star player on that team. Um, she certainly was aspiring to go further in her basketball career. She was also just a real homebody as a teenager. And so she was kind of caught up in that early social media moment of, you know, Facebook and um, regular texting. This is kind of pre-Instagram era. But for the most part, you know, India was a kid that was, doing what, if I had a daughter, I would want her to be doing when she's in high school, 
which is, you know, she's playing basketball. She, uh, in the, in the aftermath of this case, uh, so many people who went to high school with her have reached out to me to talk about uh, how friendly India was and how India was a person who always made other students, whether they were popular or not, always made them feel included. And how, you know, the accounts of this particular crime are so foreign to the person that they knew in high school. And there is a tremendous outpouring of support among her former classmates, which I think actually speaks to, to who India really was. And so, uh, you know, this is a person who's not, she's not in the streets, she's not, you know, running around um, doing, you know, sort of experimenting with juvenile delinquency. She's, she's on a straight and narrow path. Um, and, you know, the only time she leaves the house is when she goes to work her part-time job at Dunkin' Donuts and she's got to get her father or her grandfather to drive her there. But she's she comes from a really lovely family. Um, this, this is a person who would be getting a scholarship to college uh, and doing fantastic things. So what happened? So, the, 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 the crazy thing about this case is Kev, that they interrogated her without her parents present. Yeah. So let's, this is, this is kind of the-, the <laughs> Make what, sure people know that. We're kind of, we're kind of going the 12 step route. What it was like, what happened and what it's like now for India, right? So, so what happened? I mean, she like, I would imagine, given what I've read so far, and I haven't read all the case files yet, but she was probably shocked when she was picked up for this for this questioning. Yeah, she had no idea. She didn't know that she was a suspect in a crime. In fact, the when the police showed up to her house, and there was four of them, there was two detectives and two uh, cops. And when they showed up, they did show up uh, with guns blazing and they did put her in handcuffs. This did not ring any alarm bells for her grandfather, which who was a retired uh, Philly PD. And I think the reason it didn't ring alarm bells for him in the way that it would for me is that this is a sort of routine uh, display of force the Philadelphia Police Department engages in, particularly in black and brown communities. Uh, so it would be unusual if they showed up in my house that way, uh, but it would be standard practice in other neighborhoods in this city and to other families in this city. So, so, let, so let me just, I just want to, why, why would it be unusual to, for them to show up in your house that way? Because they know that I'm going to lawyer up. <laughs> <laughs> they know, that not not me personally, but they know that my zip code is going to lawyer up. So I see, and, and, and that's what I wanted to hear, right? Because we always say it on the show, your zip code determines the type of treatment you get when you come in contact with the police. And ladies and gentlemen, this is not coming from Jess Wilder, this is coming from a sociologist professor from Villanova. Just telling you this, because when, when me and Kevin say, you know, we always get the, well, y'all just saying that because y'all was affected by the system. I said, exactly. I guarantee you if I was in a different zip code, when the police um came to my house with guns blazing, I probably would have had different results. Well, and, and we just got interviewed on a show a live YouTube show. And when I mentioned that I had been arrested right off of 16th and Mission, a guy that used to live in the Mission in San Francisco was like, that's a hellhole. I got arrested in a very different way than I've ever been pulled over in my life when I'm in the neighborhoods that I normally live in. So when I was using heroin living in the Mission, I was dragged to the ground and, you know, basically shackled. When I was, when I was, when I've been pulled over 
in Mill Valley, California or Santa Rosa, California or any other place in, in San Francisco, it's been like, hello, sir, how are you doing? You know, and it's just a totally different experience. So I think zip code is 100% the, you know, the, the key factor, but I, I wanna roll back to something really quick. So we have four male police officers, I'm assuming, that come to her house, handcuff her, take her in custody, into custody with guns out. Uh, and how old was she again? 17 years old? Or was she 16? Okay, so she's six, a 16-year-old young adult, a child, actually. Let's just be honest. She's under 18, who by all accounts is a an excellent student, an excellent athlete, and makes everybody in her life feel welcome. So this is not only going to shock her, but this is gonna be completely outside of anything she would ever expect to happen to her in her life. Great, her grandfather's a cop and she lives with him. She lives with her dad and her grandfather. You think her grandfather is gonna let this kid, you know, move sideways? Okay, no. so what, what happens when um, they take her into custody? So, yeah, so I, I think that, I just wanna underscore the point, Kevin, because sometimes it's difficult for people to understand why someone would make an incriminating statement and a, a like a false statement that implicates them when they are innocent, 100% innocent of a crime. And it's actually, I teach this every semester, it's actually so easy uh, to get someone to incriminate themselves. And it's particularly easy when we're talking about kids and when we're talking about kids with learning disabilities. So right from the initial police encounter, we have this show of force where she's put in handcuffs. She hasn't been in handcuffs before in her life. She's separated from her father. So her father is doing all the right things, saying, I wanna accompany you down to the station house. And they're kind of poo-pooing him. Like, we just wanna ask her about a crime. They put her in the back of the car and she never sees her parents again. They put her father in a separate car to take him down there. Her grandfather, meanwhile, is calling to try to get a lawyer. And then she is asking repeatedly for her father. When she starts realizing that, that this isn't just they want some information about a crime, can she help them out? Uh, because the verbal abuse is starting in that car where she's being told she's a liar and she needs to confess. She has no idea what's what's happening. So juveniles have a constitutionally protected right to have a parent or legal guardian present precisely because of the vulnerability of juveniles to police coercion and not even to just police coercion, but also just to suggestion because kids are taught to you know, um, certainly obey authority figures and, and please authority figures. So we have this thing going on down at the police headquarters where her father is trying to get in to be with her. He knows that that is her right. They're telling him, they're, they're sort of stalling him out. At one point, they illegally confiscate his cell phone. So he's not able to communicate with his father or any lawyer that his father's maybe managed to drum up. He also can't continue to communicate with India's mother. So he's asking for her. She's in that interrogation room asking for him as they call her a liar, as they threaten her, as they indicate that she's not going home anytime soon. And then her mother shows up at the police station. And again, the same dance begins. Her mother is separated from her father. Her mother is asking again and again to be present in that room. And they're saying, oh, it'll just be, the detectives will be down in a few minutes. So it, it, it's like this sort of, um, it, it's, it's the most cynical uh, exercise of illegal, unethical 
behavior that violates Philadelphia PD guidelines. It violates every conceivable constitutional protection that a child uh, should have. And, um, and then they ultimately, to get her parents out of there, they try to have her mother, they tell the parents uh, she's confessed when she hadn't. They try to have her mother retroactively sign a permission to have interrogated her outside their present, their presence, which her mother very smartly refuses to sign. So that's how we have some timestamp on what's going on. But of course her parent, you know, they say she confessed. Okay, you, you don't think that's gonna be a lie. So they tell the parents to leave, the parents leave. And that's when they start in on the real interrogation. So how did any of the interrogation even make it into court? I mean, it should have been tossed. Right. And so that's the sort of third element here. So, you know, when I think about this case, and I, I think I said this to you guys before, but I think about it as, as almost a symphony, right? It has sort of three parts. And the first part is the crime. And the second part is the interrogation. How do we get India to implicate herself? And the third part is why doesn't India have any defense or any protections? And that should have come in the form of her court, or of her lawyer. Um, unfortunately, her lawyer is uh, a kind of poster boy for ineffective assistance of counsel. And so he did not raise the issue um, in court of, or not in a meaningful way, he did not raise the issue of the coerciveness of the interrogation, the fact that one of her interrogators is Detective James Pitts, who has a long um, history of uh, coercion. It just doesn't come into the record, so no one hears it. Yeah, well, and that's not, now that's the investigator that I was talking about that has had had has cases that he has lost for the city in the millions of dollars because of coercive coercive uh, questioning techniques, um, you know, borderline, and maybe what would be considered torture. Definitely, um, you know, psychological torture of especially women. Um, and so, so now we've got, I mean, I guess the other question though, is why did the judge let this in? Like what, who, who, I mean, how in the world, you know, is it just because of the ineffective counsel? Was the judge not paying attention? Did the counsel not bring it up? Like what exactly happened? None of, nothing that was done between the time that they put her in handcuffs and the time that they charged her should be admissible in court based on what is all of all this information and how in the world has has the court not seen this case a second time you know yeah i um you know here's where you're really hoping that you've got a judge that is you know on the ball and is making sure that the quality of the representation is what it should be when we're particularly when we're talking about a vulnerable teenager um i think in this case uh you know, a lot of this information is not available to the judge. So, you know, we we have uh, her co-defendant who says that she is the shooter. Uh, the statement that she signs that is identical to the statement of the co-defendant, except it switches the identity of the shooter. It certainly puts her there. Um, and so I, so, you know, you would hope that the judge would be sort of the last safeguard in this but it just didn't, it didn't happen for whatever reason. Some of, some of the information that the judge would not have been privy to. Um, I would argue though, you know, and hindsight is 2020, but certainly looking at the transcript, 
and looking at the kind of representation or lack of representation that India got, if I was if I was the judge on that case, I would be uh, very concerned. The drug war deals with people even if they've never stepped foot in a jail or a prison. So if we talk about the women that go to public hospitals, that get tested, that lose the, their, the custody of their children, if we talk about the women that are having to deal with the collateral consequences of the drug war and housing, if we talk about the women that are trying to keep their families together in deportation settings, if we talk about the, di the, 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 the dissemination of criminalization throughout this whole process and how women continuously are the people that are trying to hold it together based on our role in society, if we're not having a conversation about mass criminalization, then we've missed the boat on how we're gonna dismantle the thing in the first place. It's just a failure all the way. And these are the systems that are supposed to protect children. That's right. So what, what physical um, evidence she's got convicted on? There is no physical no evidence. No physical evidence. So she basically so got convicted I, based on, a, on, on the statement. She got convicted on the statement. And, and one thing that's notable is there's a couple witnesses here. So, you know, this, this um, event starts with a robbery at about 2.30 in the afternoon in, in the middle of August. And so the robbery victim is able to describe uh, with a high degree of detail, the, the male and female who robbed her. And that robbery victim gives three statements on the same day to police. All of those statements are consistent in terms of the physical description of her assailants. And in the case of the female, she describes the female as being dark skinned, as being she makes a number of references to her weight as being 180 pounds, a size 18, uh, thick, wearing all black uh, Muslim clothes. She she sticks with that the whole way through. There's a second witness. This is the witness. She doesn't see the shooting, but she sees the shooters leaving the scene, who also uh, describes the female assailant as being thick and as wearing at least a black uh, Muslim headpiece. So you have those statements that are made on the day of the robbery and the murder. That's going to be, you know, empirically speaking, the most accurate statements that you're gonna get from witnesses, what they recall right then in that moment, not three years later at trial. However, what happens at trial is that both, both witnesses uh, are able to kind of reconcile the fact that their initial descriptions are of a dark-skinned woman who is uh, heavy set to the fact that India Spellman is tall, skinny, and uh, light-skinned. Both witnesses uh, just go ahead and say, yeah, well, we think it's her. So when they're looking at her from the stand, they say, yeah, that's, that's who it so was. So really, they have no fucking idea. <laughs> or, yeah, or, or some, you know, I don't know. Did, did, were they subject to some kind of uh, oh, pressure this... from the police department to, to make a match here? I have no idea. This... This is a typical Philly case of get get the case closed. Get the case closed. You know, and it doesn't matter who you hurt in doing it. Right. And it doesn't matter that there's a shooter who is still yeah, out there. Yeah, there's a murderer out there. It's not India. And I, I want to point out, you know, some of the feedback on the on the um, internet is is very critical of the male co-defendant. How was the male um, co-defender? That's what that's what I want to emphasize here. He was 14 years old. He also was interrogated. There, there were 
points during his interrogation where his mother was present. There were points where she was not present. And so I, I think it's important that we keep the focus uh, on uh, police and prosecutors, defense counsel and the judge, because a 14 year old really can't be expected, uh, certainly to hold up under uh, the pressure of interrogation, but also be expected to, to uh, you know, 100% do the right thing here. He's 14. Okay, but oh, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I can relate to this. Yes, he's 14. So if we don't expect him to hold up to that kind of pressure, why should the court accept anything he say as valid? Because really, right. really what he's saying is what really got India in that jam. That That's right. should be questionably heavily. And I always say it like, how are you going to say that the brain of a juvenile don't develop to their 25 but yeah, you taking a 14 year old statement without no physical evidence and really putting another juvenile 17 at the time in jail, basically for life. Because if it was because if, if it wasn't for the for the juvenile law that they got, she probably would have got life. That, oh, she absolutely would have gotten life. And he actually admitted it's part of the record that he when he found out that police were you know, investigating that that this that this uh, that the victim died, and that the police were in the process of investigating. He contacted a friend and told his friend, "Hey, during this time period, say I was with you." That's on the record. So it's on the record already available to the court that he was fabricating information about this about this case from the very start. Right. So you know, so I, and and I think it's important that people understand when it comes to dealing with juveniles right that a lot of time these juveniles are not that naive let me be straight up because if you are if you have the capacity to plot or basically lay out try to lay out a defense if they tell you if they ask you i was with you say i was with you 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 have a little game with you what we call game in the street like at the same time you know, for Christ's sake, he's 14 years old. He's 14 years old. The police, the prosecutors, the judge, or any adult should have the, the, the capacity to say, hold up, should I take what this 14 year old is telling me and go arrest somebody else or should we investigate further? But they don't. In Philadelphia, they don't. Because if you're 14 and I'm 15, Trust me, the 15 year old is probably gonna get the bulk of the time. It happened in my case. And we all know 30 something years later that we discovered a, a statement that the police always knew who did the crime. They knew who the shooter was. But since he was younger than I, it was almost like give him the time, right? So India just got caught up in a situation I wouldn't even say that this 14 year old kid is a snitch. I wouldn't even label him that. You know, I would say we have a 14 year old kid that I guarantee you, if you start digging into his background, probably been traumatized, probably been through some shit in his household, got caught up and just got to get out of jail ticket real quick. Listen, if you believe the statements of the witnesses that they give to police on those days, this 14 year old child was with an adult 
Both witnesses made that very clear, that it's an adult woman. And so this 14-year-old child is, you know, I don't know if the adult is an authority figure in terms of, of the family, but certainly is a, a person who is exercising some power over the 14-year-old in these encounters because it doesn't even really seem like the 14-year-old is, is doing much in the encounters. When you listen to the statement of the uh, robbery victim, certainly, it's, it, it's, he's there. That's, That's it. That's Philadelphia, I mean, people. Philadelphia would take your grandkids, 13, 14, and lock them up with no evidence. And we keep talking about this in every show. In every show, mothers, know where your kids are at at all time. You know, please, because you don't want your daughter to end up like India. This is the perfect case of why we always say, if you are 13 and 14 years old, your mother or father or your guardian should know where you at at all time. For this reason. Because once you get that life sentence, and this case is 30, 35 years, man, you might never see the streets. And I'll tell you why, because India got sentenced under the 850 bill, right? You get 30 years, you go see parole, you get denied parole the first time, now you gotta wait five years, five more years. And if you get any misconduct, you gotta wait another five years. So you can't tell me that you expect a juvenile person to be in a correctional facility and not get one infraction. I had 187 of them. I have 187 of them before I realized that I didn't want to hit the 200 mark. 187 of them. It was a bunch of infractions for nothing. Taking extra cup of juice and just not listening to the guard when he tell me to stand up for count. But when you go see parole with the type of time that she have and under the bill that she sent us, she might get a hit because everybody to go see parole get a hit everybody you know so what i'm saying to god is man like know the law you know take control of your kids because it started in the household and i know people don't like it when i say it right they always ask well how come jay start with you because my mother was in the game too my mother ain't gave a damn if i was selling drugs and now my mother sold drugs because i came from that type of household and that's the reason why i end up serving a license End up serving 31 years because there I had no control. If I had some control in the household, I probably would have never been in jail. You feel me? So this is why I tell people, know where your kids are at at all time. Because we just talking about India right now. There's hundreds of cases like that out there. Hundreds okay. of cases. Talking about her though, does she have an alibi for the time of the crime? She does, and it's it's as solid an alibi as you would want, short of being on stage in front of you know the Super Bowl. Um, so she was at home with her grandfather and her father, an ex, a decorated cop. But, you know, Let's say this: I, I talked to the to the man, a faithful decorated cop, not just a cop, somebody to put time in the police force, decorated. That man never had a right. complaint against him as a cop. And even if you're not inclined to believe family members, India was actually on her phone. India was on her phone during the shooting and the murder of the victim in this case. And this isn't this isn't the era of 
you know, where we're on our phones and we're like filming, we're on Facebook Live and Instagram. That's not the kind of technology that India had in 2010. This is, these are the old school phones. So she's sending text messages. She's talking on the phone to her girlfriend. None of that information came into court because the attorney didn't bring it in. A subsequent uh, investigation tracked down the phone number that she was on. She was on for half an hour during what would have been a shooting of the victim, uh, tracked down that particular phone number. Turns out that woman was her girlfriend and can confirm that they were on the phone that day for approximately that amount of time. Never called, never testified. Who was the DA in her case? Seth Williams. Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, we talking about the same Steph Williams that stole <laughs> from his mama, the same Steph Williams that lied to the people of Philadelphia, the same Steph Williams that was trying to keep juveniles in prison for 35 years. And and who, wait, who did he serve under as an ADA before that? Yeah, just making yes. sure. No, we just want to make sure that the people know that we keep going to keep talking about this because me and Kev talk about this all the time, you know. These are people that don't have no credibility at all, at all. But yet, the conviction stand under that office, under that shadow. Well, I gotta ask, where's Uncle Larry in all this? What's what's uh, what's the what's the conviction integrity unit doing well, with India's case? Well, I can answer that to you. You know, Uncle Larry, I like to go for the low hanging fruits of cases. Uncle Larry has never exonerated a woman in the state in the city of Philadelphia, period. That's right. And that's that's the the um, pressure point that I'm really trying to, to um, emphasize here, which is there are plenty of women who are who have been convicted in Philadelphia County who are currently serving life and near life sentences at SCI Muncie and SCI Cambridge Springs who are not getting before conviction integrity because people aren't taking the time to engage them and to do the kind of, you know, investigative Who's footwork, the type of footwork, the type of footwork and the type of ass kissing that it takes to get to the integrity unit. Let's be clear because people think that you just write the integrity unit and they're going to get you. Now it's who you know that could get you there. And we all know that in Philadelphia, right? So I'm speaking specifically to uncle Larry, right? And he's been on the show three times, two times, three times, right? And I'm gonna always say, stop going for the low hanging fruit because not every case got a DNA in their case. And women, that's where women are really disadvantaged in these because women's wrongful convictions tend not to have DNA. Well, and so you don't get that easy smoking gun in these cases. There's no physical the evidence in this case whatsoever. No physical evidence. And we, we have a, a, an officer with a history. And you know, there's with a history. Where we might not have we might not have such a pattern of conduct. I mean, you know, you think about how you sentence people on conviction, right? And you look at the patterns of their behavior. Well, here we have an officer with a, a pretty significant pattern when it comes to complaints about interrogation and force. If I'm not mistaken, they had a they got an article that just came out. I think two other officers in the Anthony Wright case, Bolo's case, just got found um, guilty of perjury. They've been indicted by the grand jury. Yes. So that's good. Let's let, let me applaud that. That's good that the grand jury in Philadelphia is um, um really indicting some of these clowns, right? But 
Uncle Larry, I know you listen to our show, and and I know you got to go. Un- Uncle Larry, I know you listen to this show. I know you're a big fan. We we love you, and and we love that you support us. But if you and your integrity, you and the Patricia County, we've been asking you to come on the show. Do not respond to this case, right? I give you my word that we're going to keep talking about the case till you do respond. And you know, Kevin McCracken and Robert Gonzalez would not stop. You already seen that, Larry. So, you know, just come on the show and let's talk about this. We talked to Larry and to the point where we call his office like a hundred times. Well, you know, the other thing I really want to start advocating for is that conviction integrity also needs to have social science, social scientists in it. That it can't just be run uh, by prosecutors and uh, investigators. It's got to have uh, the, the people who are outside the system who have a familiarity with how these cases work and who aren't beholden to anybody in the system. Well, that's you. You come with the credibility. You done it. You know, and, and I think that, and I always say this, we have a platform and we could use this platform for whatever we want, whatever we want. But I always tell Kev, man, let's start talking about these cases in Philly that nobody know about. Because sometimes people just go for the cases that they see and that they're hyping up, right? Man, how about the cases that don't have that? You know, the further you are upstate, the less attention you get in your case. If you're not in Phoenix, Cold Township, Dallas, the further you are, that's the least, the less attention you're going to get on your case. That's when we come in at, right? Because you ain't never, never, ever going to hear about a case in Munson or Cambridge Spring. You know, it's important that people know that there's no woman has been exonerated in, in, in Philadelphia. You know, why? Why? If, if we talk about reforming the system and we talk about fairness, you know, uh, 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 we still, we got to talk about sexism. The sad reality is that the integrity unit is, is, is headed by a woman, but a lot of the investigators are male. And they're trying to resolve cases that could get them in front of the media fast. They're not trying to really go into these cases they don't have DNA, you know. So, but but this is when we got to put the pressure on because we know if you read in this case, it's obvious. Even the judge, when he sentences or he says something about like, oh, like he he sort of acknowledges how contradictory the testimony about her and what she did versus like everything that they you know he that he has before him in the in the sentencing report and so he says like you know this is a kid from a really good family but blah 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 blah, blah. Uh, and it's like well wait don't aren't you intellectually curious to understand how someone whose sentencing report can look like this when you have investigators go back and interview the teachers and look at the grades and look at the high school activities and then you've got this, and then you have this uh, assailant who is super aggressive, and that is not anywhere in this child's past history in school. It would have it manifest. Um, but the judge just sort of acknowledges the contradiction. So wh- what was the results from her co-defendant? Her co-defendant, I believe, did two years. <laughs> what? In a, 
in a juvenile institution. That's right. Um, now there are like there are two things from the um, co-defendant. One is that there was uh, an effort on his part or, or on the part of his attorneys to have the statements that he made to police taken out of the record. Um, Too late for that. Well, and, and that, was, don't do that, that was like early on, and of course he lost that. Um, in part because his mother signed everything, so you know if she's cool with it, it's hard to make the argument that then there was any kind of untoward police behavior. The other thing, and I don't. He, his mother probably told him to do that. Well, his mother is his mother is what is appears to be the person who initiated the police contact in the first place. So the right. crime. It happened in my case. My, my, my co-defendant's mother was there. She signed all, and, and that was one of the issues in court. Why is that signature in every statement on every page, right? So yeah, you know, you can't say it, but I say it. His mother probably initiated this shit. Like, look, you're gonna tell her that this girl did it so you can get out of jail. And that's just the way it is. That's, that's the reality. And like I always tell people, right, Kevin? What, what's our favorite saying? If you feel uncomfortable when we say something, good right and that's that and, and you know and this is what happens this is what happens you know i'm even afraid to ask you now have our cold defender ever been back to jail as he's been locked up you know what's his life now because he this happened in 2010 what he's what 22 24 now going on 25 is he is he a model citizen is he out is he working and you know living according to his citizenship um, duties or is he out there in the game yeah so the one thing that i opted not to do in this case was to have any of the students that are working on my team do any kind of uh, research into him and so i can't and i've kind of left all that to you know india's attorneys and and their what whatever their strategies are so i couldn't tell you uh, anything about his current whereabouts. <laughs> I probably know the answer, but okay, okay. No, no, and I'm and I'm just saying this to say, right? When you have somebody at fourteen that's able to say she did it and testify. That's probably somebody that 10 years down the line is going to be back in the system. And I'll give you my word that as soon as we get off this call, we're going to Google him. We, we're going to search him. It's not, that's public information, right? And I know you decided not to do that. Me and Kay going to decide on one thing because people need to know. People need to know, right, that this model citizen locked this young woman up and what his life is about today. Because if you tell well, me he to, go to Catholic church, the police and the prosecutors that locked her up. Based on his statement though. Well, but we don't know. Yes. Like, uh, accountability. I, you know, I, I know you, I, I know we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it clean. We're going to keep it where the police didn't do their job. That's a hundred percent right. But at the same time, you initiated something that caused 
a young woman highlight. Obina Onaya, a 38-year-old black man from Philly, has been exonerated after spending more than a decade behind bars. Onaya confessed back in 2010 to a robbery and murder he didn't commit, but only after spending more than eight hours in police custody where he was repeatedly beaten by two detectives. The cops, Omar Jenkins and James Pitt, have a long history of falsifying evidence and using abusive interrogation tactics. Seven murder cases they've helped build have fallen apart, either before, during or after trial, and at least half of a dozen people have named Pitts in lawsuits uh, costing the city millions of dollars. Despite all of this, both detectives still remain employed by Philadelphia PD. I hear you. I, I just want to like- You initiated I, that. Well, you know, let's mother not. initiated that, from my understanding. Okay, your mother is getting indicted too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, they're all in my indictment, all of them. They're not, none of them is gonna get a break. You see, because the thing is, and they don't, I read the case, and they do not belong in jail. Period. India is in jail because the co-defender and his mom went to the police and decided to implicate somebody else so they could save his ass from going to jail. And he get the sweetest deal ever. He do his time in a juvenile facility while India got to go upstate and suffer the inhumane conditions that these prisoners offer these juveniles when they come in. She went to State Road as a juvenile and then to Cambridge Springs. And we're not talking about a 14-year-old kid no more. We're talking about a 24, 25-year-old kid now. Man. Man, that he should have the guts to say, you know what, man, when I was 14, I lied. He should, even though they probably won't believe him, but it would it would help a little bit. It would absolutely help if... if it will help a little bit because and, and they can't and they cannot do anything to you at all. You was a juvenile. Yeah, I mean they cannot do anything to you. He should at least have the guts and say, you know what? When I was 14, I lied, I didn't want to go to jail. So this is why I said that. Right? Because that at least would grant her a yeah, hearing. I think in court. the thing though, that especially in a case that's this delicate with two juveniles involved we would want a licensed private investigator to go talk to him so that there's no undue influence being put on by a show like ours where we're, we've got we've got a narrative you know what i mean and i believe that she's innocent um at the minimum i believe there was enough wrongdoing for a retrial um you know and i mean there's so many problems with this case it's almost like a you know it's it's almost a joke but um you know, I just think, you know, what, because we, we've got another case that we're looking at that we both, both Suave and I have wanted to go up and find this guy that, you know, that, that, that basically is the reason that two men are in serving life in prison in Pennsylvania. Got a murder yeah. confession on tape and these dudes yeah. still in the street. And so, but we know that if we go, the, anything that he says to us could get thrown out, you know? Yeah. So we just, and then also they could just do that, you know, oh, well, advocates for India are trying to court are trying to, yep. you know, use. So, so let, let's talk about her situation in terms of uh, legal defense and private investigation. Is there a fund set up for her? Uh, not yet. So, so, you know, I had, I don't know Lisa. Well, I'm, I'm met and I'm, I love her. I think she's awesome. We've talked one time and I've sent her uh, the files that I have for India. 
Um, and in that conversation, she was explaining, you know, what she does and that basically she'll like put people or put resources to like concrete things that cases need. Um, and so she used the example of hiring a private investigator or getting a different attorney. Um, so I did contact uh, India's parents and also India about this. And what India asked um, immediately, because I had said to Lisa, let's get a private investigator and just try to figure out what, what actually happened. Because that's still, even if we get India out, that's still this sort of open question, um, which I would like an answer to. And I think the victim's family deserves an answer to. Um, so, so, what, so I went to India and India said, I've also sort of nosed around asking what, how people feel about the quality of the current attorney. Um, because the current attorney, he and I were working together last summer um, but then he went silent on me when I asked for trial transcripts. So, um, and I'm not sure, I mean, it could just be because the thing is so delicate and I'm working with students, although my students are highly trained, they all sign NDAs. But trial so transcripts it, should be public record. No, that's actually a giant scandal in criminal justice land, is for me to get trial trans, so like actual transcripts from the trial, usually can be like 500 to a thousand dollars it's one of my biggest expenses at justice project so everyone any defendant is entitled to one free copy of their transcript and of course but you know of course people lose them they get misplaced lawyers die so a lawyer representing a defendant can usually get hold of them even if the defendant has lost it um but that doesn't mean that lawyer has to share it with anybody and so i like I, I don't know what to make of the fact you wouldn't give me the transcripts. I bought, I spent $250 getting closing arguments um, and then we're raising money to get the, it's like another $500 to get the rest of the transcript. So, so I asked the family, how do you feel about the quality of representation? They felt okay, but you know, it's different, it's different me evaluating it than people who don't have experience working with appellate attorney. Um, what India asked is, for us not to hire anybody or do anything until after the September hearing. She wants to see how that goes, um, which I, I think is fair enough. Like, you know, you don't want to piss the guy off before. When is the hearing in September? Uh, so her mother says uh, September 21st, the date that is on Unified Judicial is the 14th. And I, I'll double check that again. Um, but her mother has given me a different date than the date that I'm seeing on the, on the court calendar. Okay. So, is it, an, is it an open her, hearing? I don't think her mother's. It, uh, it will be open as long as the, you know, as long as the courts are open because of the pandemic. Like Suave Gonzalez. I mean, I'm going to be there. I, I will be there with my with my um. With your recorder. With my recorder. And we'll like the uh, Philly Justice Project. Like we will definitely we're going to do a call to get people out so that even if we can't get in the courtroom we'll have like a group of people who are like, you know, signs and maybe standing in front of the district attorney's office. Because, you know, a lot of these cases that I work, you really don't want to retrial. You know, you don't want to put a person through it again. This particular case, I would love a retrial, not to put India through and her family through it, but just because it's such a slam dunk. It's so obviously a wrongful conviction. There is no way a jury's going to convict going forward. But so that's okay. where we are. So we'll see what happens. 
September okay. and I mean I'm just curious like what investigator the the attorney's using and you know I mean I'm just curious I mean I, the, like Rios and Rodriguez has, have given us access to their attorney and private investigator and their um, family. I have wait who did that one of the other cases that were that Lisa and Spencer oh. are reporting on yeah it's crazy you know like usually attorneys give me trial transcripts and everything I asked for I don't know why he didn't. And you know, the interesting thing is that there's another case that a son, this is a, a guy, but his son reached out to me to look into. And um, I said, okay, but I can't do anything until I see the transcripts. Guess who's, guess who's the appellate attorney on that case? He's he's a PCRA attorney. And um, so I couldn't get the transcripts in that case either, despite having a request from the son. I do know when I was talking to Todd last summer, this is the attorney. He was very passionate about this case. He, he, he said, this is the case that keeps him up at night. Um, but you know, if he's not getting paid, that might slow things down. I, I, I he might be going to sleep then. If he didn't get any pay, he might be taking some naps on the case. I think that the way that he's dealing with the case seems appropriate. I mean, there's no, you know, when I'm looking at it, there's no obvious deficiency in, in what he filed for PCRA. Um, I mean, because uh, India comes from an interested family. Go ahead. <laughs> as far as her cousins and stuff like oh, that. See, right? I don't know anything about the cousins. You know, like, so I'm wondering why, you know, like, well, well who her cousins are. It, it's like, they, I don't know if it's the family having recruited them to be more involved, but mm -mm. you know, it, okay, it could I definitely know, help. I know that the, um, yes, the one cousin did, uh, has posted on, um, on the Instagram account on Philly justice project. Um, so he's definitely following it. So I, they have reached out. I don't know at what point we're talking about the same cousin, right? We're talking about the same cousin yeah, that's in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Lee Daniels. Like, like, I mean, with that type of, his name alone would get her any fucking attorney to represent her for free, for real. And maybe, and maybe he's paying for. It. I, I don't know. You know, so, so you know, because I, I, I just believe, man, that this case need the kind of the kind of campaign that every time you mention anything, it should be yeah. this name coming up. I want to be clear, Mosser has incredibly good reviews all over the internet. I'm just doing a quick search. This guy, he is, he's, he looks like the man for appeals. So I, I don't think there's going to be any issue with representation. I mean, it, if you said to me that she's being represented, represented by the state again, I'd be like, oh, but th this guy, this guy is, you know, he looks top notch. So I, I, I doubt that there's going to be any issue there. It's probably, he's probably just busy. I mean, shit, appeals are a nightmare. As well, uh, he could be busy all he wants, but we still want to end the out. Like, don't make this shit on your time. Like, pay attention to the case. He definitely, because, he definitely is trying to get it in front of conviction integrity. Yeah. I, well, that might be um, the other reason he's not giving because once they take it, they may have taken it already, and, and no one knows. They don't want the lawyer telling anyone. So, so it could be, you know, it could be sitting on Cummins' desk right now, for all we know. You know what I mean? That's that's right. That's a really important point because. And, um, and, and if that's and, and the case, he's doing the right not, thing by not reaching back out because. Yeah, but we still need to talk to him, right? For the simple fact that we don't want to put something out that could, could 
trust me, Larry's crashing his office listening to our to our show. So we don't want to put nothing out that could be like, dang, you just messed up our opportunity. So he needs to really tell us, like, listen, I appreciate, and we had lawyers tell us that. We appreciate what you're doing, the publicity, but not right now. Well, and we that's have something like, else. I have a feeling that that you know that, that they may be given a look at Rios and Rodriguez right now because I haven't heard anything from their attorney either or their their PI since. Well, the last the last time, remember the last time um, Air Foster was supposed to be meeting with Patricia Cunning, remember yeah. For, about the Rios case. So they probably told, they probably told Foster don't talk to them two crazy motherfuckers doing the podcast well see right? that's where like it's useful for me to like work with with the attorney so that because i you know like obviously we're all professionals and so uh wh like when i talked to him last summer he was like all right let's just see you know let's just see how things go and then when i couldn't get in contact with him anymore and and i had done en like enough that i was satisfied on my end in terms of how to narrate this um i contacted Indian or family and said, I can't get a hold of them. What do you want me to do? Uh, do you want me to, to start advocating out there publicly or do you want me to just sit silent? And I do that for every single case that we have. And I've always abided by it. I've never, you know, gone off the chain or whatever. Um, and so India was like, no, put it out there. Um, well, I, I just want to make sure we're not going to jeopardize anything for her case. If it is in front of the, you know, the conviction integrity unit, I know that they're very quiet once they start their work. Um, but I also don't think that we should hesitate in just reporting on it, you know, and if, and if, and if, and if, um, Mosser reaches back out to you, maybe just shoot him an email and say, Hey, listen, we're getting interviewed for this podcast. It's very popular in Philadelphia. We don't want to step on any toes. Can you just give me a, a hint whether or not this has gone, um, in front of the, the CIU, um, so that we're not getting anyone in any trouble, you know, um, yeah, might, okay. might not be a bad idea. And then, yeah, that's um, but I, it's not going to stop us from reporting on it. Also, let him know Swabby want to yeah. talk to him, please. <laughs> Keep the word in. I know. I think we we have something we need to do for you at some point. Get you off live temporal. So, can you please <laughs> put that word in? Don't guys want to talk to you? I, I'm serious. Listen, listen. You'd be surprised how many lawyers we talked to that it was like, oh my god, I thought you was I, like, no, I went to school, Villanova. When I tell them I graduated from Villanova, they'd be like, huh? Okay, you know, we come with credibility. But what I'm saying is the family's ready to talk. I talked to the grandfather. He talked talked me to death for about two hours. Well, the mother is almost like, um, I don't know, she's all over the place. The grandfather, the grandfather is angry. He wants everybody locked <laughs> up, all the cops. I know. I'm serious. You called me right and, after you talked to him. And I, and I think it's almost like he feel betrayed. How dare you lock my granddaughter up when I gave you so much time as a cop? That's the feeling I walked away with. So that that's what I walked away from him. And he was like, you understand me? I'm like, sir, I served 31 years. I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there. You know, so... But but I think that the family's ready to talk. Yes, a hundred percent. And I like um I think, you know, with her mom, it it all just comes out. There's just so much. Just like, you know, we like we've been talking today, but you know, for her, she has so many more 
details and, and then is so, you know, emotionally obviously wrapped up in it. Her father also, uh, you know, like reached out and sent me, he's got an Instagram uh, account, I think it's private, but like on his account, there's just a lot of photos of him with India saying how much he misses his daughter. I mean, he's like the dad everybody wants. And he sent me some photos, some family photos with her and definitely the family is ready uh, to put this behind them and to and to have people know the story. Yeah. Well, e email me. Yes. Well, we hit it. We hit it. We, we definitely email me all the so, like social media posts if you have them in files, and we'll repost them on our social media and our personals. Um, because between the DBI and Suave and myself, we probably got what like fifteen thousand or more followers, twenty thousand. Hold up, no, I, I'm up to yeah, twelve thousand right almost now. Five. I'm at, you know, I'm I'm the small guy. I'm the small. I'm at I'm the small guy at at, at sixteen hundred. <laughs> well, no, that's respect. Like I think that's Justice Project might be right around like fifteen fifty or something, and then I'm at like twelve hundred because I'm I'm old. But <laughs> but but you know what? This case is so interesting, and I say this because Kevin, my partner, that um. Other networks, you know, that's doing my second season for the Suave Podcast, they like, can we share the case? You know, and we talking about NPR. You know, we talking about national top reporters, and I'm like, absolutely not. I'm not sharing that. I'm not sharing that case. Well, no, not yet. But you got, you still have to put her first, like. No, no, no. Exactly. No, not only that. It's just to say that. When people hear the story and they read what they could read online, right? It's almost like, how the heck this woman got locked up? I know. But like, honestly, I do so many of these cases and it actually, I mean, you already know this, but it's, if if the police want to get you, they're going to fucking get you. Like, they get my you. husband but it's is like, like it's, we have it's, to put it's, a security it's, camera in the back of our house, not because of people coming, not, not because of like getting burglarized. He's worried about the police. Um, and, and like, he's worried, yeah, he's worried that like it, because I have kicked up so much stuff, uh, particularly on the uh, officer that was on the Alvarado case, um, that yeah, he's, he worries about it because it, it's actually not that hard. Well, tell him, don't worry about it. We got his back. <laughs> Thank you. He will appreciate that. He's a good guy. We got, me, me and Kevin got pretty good lawyers now, so. <laughs> We got, we got, I never had some good lawyers like I got them now. <laughs> you know, I tell the lawyers I needed you 30 years ago, not now. I'm, I'm a citizen. So listen, you take care. We're going to get you again. We need at least five interviews with you. <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. seriously. I'm down. Because we, we're trying to put this whole series out on India's case. Um, it's coming along because we're going to talk to the family and stuff. But um, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, guys. Thank you for my wonderful B. Uh, I still graduated with a 3.5. There you go. So, it just um, motivated you. So it's I, motivation. You know, I don't want. No, listen. I, I can't have you guys thinking I, I'm soft I, and all that shit. I got what I deserve. A B. That's what I work for. Now, I didn't even work. I thought I was going to get a C. I was. I would have been yeah, happy. Yeah, with a C. right. I can tell you that you, now. Yeah. You, but I'm glad you gave me a B, <laughs> and um, I'm glad we're working together. Um, I can't wait till this shit come out because I think that you are a dope storyteller. 
I keep telling kid, you got to hear what tells the story, man. It's like, he don't know yet. No, just wait. He don't know yet. <laughs> Just wait, Kevin. Like he thinks Bobby talks a lot. <laughs> like McCorkle, you better be able to tell a story. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, be easy. Dad. All right, guys. See you later. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media, LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.